This is the Territory Story Podcast with Peter and the Professor. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. Hello and welcome. This is the Territory Story Podcast. My name is Peter Gowers. I'd like to introduce now uh, my co-host, the dame herself, Elizabeth Spencer, otherwise known as the Professor. How are you, Prof? I am so well and happy to see you, Peter. Nice to be here. How are you? Uh, not too bad, not too bad. Uh, I'm I'm interstate currently, as you know, and mm-hmm. I've just noted with interest that uh, it's got a little bit cooler in the last few days. So, um, you, 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 what are you telling us that that you've got to go to bed now, and we're finished, and you, we're not doing the, what, what, what's happening? Getting under the duna. I'm just telling you that uh, yes, I'm I'm missing the <laughs> um, just the little trail end of the. Uh, Post-wet season humidity. You're missing the balmy Darwin weather. You've got chilly nights. Okay. I am indeed. And Mm. uh, look, we've got a a really great episode in store and a really interesting one because uh, as as, uh, a professor of laws, is that what you call yourself? Professor of laws or law? I call myself whatever you tell me to call myself. So, you know, yeah. Yeah. When you've got your daytime cape on, you do some official stuff at the uni. And um, all that anybody seems to be talking about at the moment, and it, and it really does affect the Northern Territory given our population, is uh, the voice referendum that's happening uh, in the not-too-distant future. It is. It is. It is a, an, an important topic of conversation. Yep. It is. Absolutely. Yeah. And you may remember once upon a time uh, we had another co-host by the name of Leon, who's uh, a mythical creature. What and, happened to uh, Leon? Where is Leon? I'm sure he mentioned it on some episode. He's he's ascended to the throne of the Lawyers Associated worldwide, so he's wow. flitting here, there, and everywhere. But uh, he he and I had a chat, and you and I had a chat, and and he suggested, and I completely agreed, it would be a great idea to get our next guest on to talk about the voice and to find out uh, what his thoughts are on it and whether uh, whether or not it's a, I'm not going to say good or bad thing for Australia, but it's, it's a very important topic to discuss. So without any further ado, I'd like to introduce to you and to the Territory Story family, uh, I, I said in advance I'd get this wrong, but Nyungai Warren Mundine. Welcome to the podcast. You got it right. I did. Oh, thank you. Thank you. you get Welcome, a Warren. Oh, thank you, Liz. Um, so so um, uh, Peter gets a, uh, gets a Christmas card. Oh, nice. <laughs> Excellent. That'll be, that'll be one for the year at least. Yeah. Warren, You'll need his um, full name before you, before you address it. <laughs> <laughs> I told you that's not getting out for anyone. <laughs> Although Leon did spill the beans on that once upon a time, so I'll, I'll, uh, I won't tell you which episode. Um, Warren, as I said before, um, it, it, we're really uh, happy and grateful to get you on to talk about uh, the voice vote or referendum, which is which is happening in the not-too-distant future. Um, what, what we'd like to do before we get to that and your stance and and to talk to us about it is it's just to hear a little bit about you and your story where you're from originally and your upbringing and and family and and things like that yes uh, thanks peter thanks liz um i can't uh, born 
Grafton on the Clarence River in northern New South Wales. Uh, my family, uh, family were from uh, by Yugal and Tabalil, which is about 80 to 120 kilometres up the Clarence Valley. And um, where the where Bundjalung, uh, Western Bundjalung, uh, because it goes from the Great Kabaiti Range down to the coast, and then it goes from the Clarence River at Grafton to Bean Lee in Queensland, the Bundjalung country area. And we made wow. up uh, we made up of eleven clans of, of people, uh, and uh, and and it's uh, quite a very heavily forest. In fact, I think the last rainforest in New South Wales is uh, is on our country. At the, and then uh, and and it's um, a very large population of Aboriginal people, as well as uh, uh, non-Aboriginal people up there. I was my parents. My, uh, my father's Bundalun, of course, uh, and he uh, married my mother, who is a Gumbanga Yuan, and a bit of Irish tossed in there too, which uh, explains some of my drinking habits. But the <laughs> and <laughs> and they, when they first got married, it was you know around nineteen forty, around the Second World War. They lived in a, a humpy, uh, and t- two of my elder brothers. And sister was born out there at Jackadri, uh, which is another about eighty kilometres from Grafton West, straight up into the Gibraltar Ranges of, of uh, New South Wales and the Great Divide. Uh, we're uh, we're one of the few uh, Aboriginal groups. In fact, one of the few that still was speaking their language uh, on a daily basis. You know, like uncles, aunties parents and grandparents and that and, and it's making a big return also with the education of our kids at university and school now it's uh, taught right across our country where we're an interesting uh, group of people and I grew up mother the Irish ancestry was a Catholic and my father was notionally Anglican, but didn't he didn't care too much. Um, uh, but when he married my mother, he had he, in those days, you know, he married a Catholic. He had to become Catholic. He didn't. He said, "That's fine. I'm happy with that." And he and there's nothing worse than a convert because he became more Catholic than the rest of us. <laughs> um, anyway, so uh, so we we brought up that sort of that, that Aboriginal. Uh, and Catholicism together, and it, and it was quite interesting uh, growing up. Um, we were very um, proud, strong people. My parents taught me uh, the values of life was don't be a victim, take responsibility for everything you do in your life, whether it's good or bad, be, be a proud, uh, abundant person, and uh, and your world's your oyster and it's up to you to make the difference in your life. And I was very strong about working and edu- getting educated and um, sometimes separately and sometimes together. You've worked and you got educated. My parents had very limited education. They only went to, uh, I think in those days, would have been fourth class uh, in a small country schools. And, and then they were put out to work after that. And so we had a large family, 11 was it kids in our family plus our parents uh, made it 13. We always joke, I don't know if you know about rugby league up there, 
But um, yes, and there's 13 players in a rugby league team, so we we had we us as kids grew up which, which position my mother would be and my dad and my sisters and my brothers and all that. Uh, one thing we where'd did know that the coach, did you play, Warren? Uh, me, I was, I was on the bench even. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> my uh, my mother, no matter uh, you know, no matter what position she played in, she was always the captain, coach. It's always the boss. <laughs> Love it. So we had this strong upbringing in that, and then um, uh, the Catholic schools. Uh, my parents were strong about it that uh, that there was only a Catholic high school for girls in Grafton at the time, and so they actually talked to the priest and the nuns and uh, letting boys go to that school because she, my mother, was very strong about wanting us to be brought up as Catholics. Much of the joy of my older brothers who then trotted off to this uh, this girls' school. Um, <laughs> we, you know, I, I um, and we moved, they, they moved us to Sydney then, thinking that we'd have a, a better opportunity in life, even though I hated it at the time, being a country boy, because we used to go out hunting and fishing and had this freedom uh, out in the bush. And all of a sudden we're in Sydney, uh, and we were in Auburn in Sydney, which is a very multicultural area. In fact, uh, in a, in some, my class at school had about 39 kids, but had 39 different nationalities. And, wow. and a lot of them were just off the boat who um, didn't quite speak English that well. Their parents definitely didn't speak English. And I, and I had this fascinating education by just talking to kids punching each other up in the playground uh, to, uh, and I learned about Italy, I learned about Estonia, I learned about all these other places in the world. But it really opened up my world to me that coming from the bush, we only had black and white people, to actually there's this whole world out there. So I was fascinated by all that and soak all that, that knowledge, everything up. I left school at um, was it, uh, Fawful, which is year 10 now, and and went and worked in a factory in Silverwater and uh, did an apprenticeship at 16. Uh, and then I wanted to buy a house. And so uh, I used to work in a bar at night in a reception centre for weddings and that on the weekends uh, for, for extra money. So I was working virtually uh, you know, 16 hours a day, you know, going from one job to the other. I had to raise my money. By the age of 21, I was able to buy my first home. Uh, and by that time, I was married um, and had a, a baby son and then uh, and a baby girl come along not long after that. So I decided that I needed to um, move ahead in life and learn some other things. So I was working on the Sydney Water Board. I was doing sewer lines and water lines, pumping stations, sewer stations and all that in that industry. Then I um, sat for the public service exam and got into the taxation office. And, and when I got in there, they had a program that was helping people because uh, I was a trolley boy there. You see, they call us trolley boys because we used to move the boxes of tax receipts up and down there. Uh, to the to the auditors and uh, from the accountants to have a look at. So then they offered uh, us if we sat for an exam that it passed that sponsor us to university. So I sat for that exam, passed, and uh, they 
and they sent me off to the South Australian Institute of Technology, which is now the University of South Australia. Studied uh, business management, uh, uh, community development, and then come back to the taxation office and left. I, I, I wanted to do other things in, in, in life. So, um, you know, I went out and worked in a number of different jobs, uh, even lectured uh, for a couple of years at the MacArthur Institute of Higher Education, which is now the West University of Western Sydney, uh, and and uh, a couple other universities in that. I um, so I, I, I then decided that uh, you know I wanted a little bit more, so I went into some more studies, and then I got into uh, went back to my uh, normal trade of fitter but I was in management then and I worked on about 29 different gas pipelines across Australia and power stations and stuff like that. Uh, and then I got uh, um, uh, a bit uppity then. So I ran for council and living and uh, got elected, the first Aboriginal elected in Dubbo to the Dubbo City Council. And, uh, and from uh, there got to be deputy mayor and, and got elected to the... Uh, South Island Government uh, Executive and then to the National Assembly of Local Government and Executive and that as well. And that's where my politics got really uh, involved in my life as well. At the same time, I was still working on gas pipelines when I was doing all this. And then um, uh, and I travelled all over the country, you know, West Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, Victoria, uh, South Australia doing the uh, pipeline works. And, and then uh, I decided to do something else. I decided to set up my own business. So I set up this small business which was consulting and, and working mainly in management and education areas. Started uh, doing research and stuff for like the Australian Law Reform Commission and another a number of other things. Uh, and then I went from there to um, uh, actually. This time I had a tribe of kids, uh, about seven of them. Uh, what, what motivated you to um, run for council? I mean, there's so many, so many things that you did seem to build one on the other. But did you have a purpose in running for council? I want to change something. I want to influence something in particular. Yeah, well, in, living in Dubbo, which had a large Aboriginal population, 90% of the population of Dubbo was uh, Aboriginal. And uh, and I was there, and I thought, well, there should have been an, you know, there should, you know, nine percent, they should be able to elect an Aboriginal council. It's about time after a hundred years that there should be an Aboriginal person on council. So uh, I talked to a friend of mine running, uh, and uh, he was uh, he was uh, a local, unlike me, I was born in Grafton. I lived there for work and marriage. I married an Aboriginal from Dubbo. And, uh, and so um, I thought we'd get a local Aboriginal elected and uh, I saw this bloke and I thought he'd make a, a good councillor. Uh, anyway, I had to go away for work because we used to, in those days we used to work 28 days straight gas pipelines and have seven days off and then 28 days straight. When I come back 28 days later, it was closing all the nations. And so I went up to the town hall and checked if his name was there and his name wasn't there. So I rang him and I said... I said, mate, it's, uh, how come your name's not up? And he said, well, I decided not to run. So I got I got pretty angry then after all the work we did to get him to run. So I walked into the town hall, mate, looked at the, the clerk or the clerk and said to him, 
electoral officer and I said, what, what are you going to do to run? And he said, well, the first thing is you've got to be on the electoral roll. The second thing is you've got to fill out this form and get two, two uh, people who are on the electoral roll to nominate you. And, uh, and thirdly, you give me $200 and, uh, and we'll register. And I said, okay. So I went down the street, uh, filled out the form, uh, got $200 out of the ATM and then ran into two mates walking down the road. And I said, uh, use an electoral roll. And they said, yeah. And I said, fill out with an nominate. And they did. So I took it back, put it on, the, and had to bring a photo. That's why you get a photo of yourself. Well, that was for the publicity thing. So I put a photo back. You know, I went to the photo shop and sort of got you know, a passport photo. And all handed it in. And I was registered as a nominee then, running for council. And then I sort of forgot about it. <laughs> and uh, and went and and, that, and the next day the local newspaper went out and my wife come uh, come into the room and and only in that voice that husbands know about she uh, she said don't you uh, don't you have something to tell me and I sort of think I've done wrong I'm going no oh, no I haven't done anything wrong I said no no I've got to tell you what's what's up and she opened the newspaper and there is our my photo with all the other candidates. <laughs> running for council, and I went, oh, yeah, by the way, darling, I'm, just, I'm running for council. <laughs> and so it was, uh, it was a fun exercise because, uh, you know, I was well known in the town for doing things. I used to coach local soccer team, basketball team, everything like that, and do, uh, do a lot of uh, volunteering around the town. Uh, but still, by that time, I was nominated that all the other blokes had done their, done, their, done deals about who their second preference and first preference. So I was cut out of the preferences. So I had to only get elected on uh, on first part, uh, on a number one vote. So I had to get out. So I got the local newspaper to take photos. I mean, I'd be standing next to a, to a pothole on the road and saying, I'll fix that. That's disgraceful, this pothole, and everything like that. And uh, of course, in polling days, very I was very lucky, fortunate too, that the soccer fields were right next to the, poll, the main polling office. And and I promised the kids, the six-year-old kids that I was coaching, that I would, despite despite that I'm running on Saturday for the election, I'm going to turn up and coach them. And, and that. so I was out there running around with all the kids, teaching, showing them how to kick a soccer ball. And then afterwards, after the game, I walked back up to the polling booth. Wife was there, and she said that that was amazing. And I said, "What do you mean?" I said, "As everyone was walking into the polling booth, they looked over and saw me running around the soccer field in my suit, my uh, campaign suit, and uh, and and run around with these kids." And they said, "Anyone will give up their polling day to go and teach kids how to kick a soccer ball. He de- he deserves to get our vote." And so, landslide, they elected. And, and, and then, the soccer team voted for you too. Yeah, that's right. All the kids, <laughs> and so that yeah, the soccer mums and the soccer dads. So what what ha- what I were, then I said, oh, okay, now elected, but we've got to start doing things, you know. And uh, so I, I played a very pivotal role. I got elected the entertainment committee and, and that. So we, uh, you know, working with uh, the state government and a few other bodies, federal government funding, we got a whole entertainment centre built there in Dubbo, uh, seated 
600 people. And um, since that was built, a million people, you know, five million people have been there for performances, you know, ballet, rock bands, and things like that. So it's become a major. People said, why did you do that? And I said, because people in Western New South Wales deserve to get the same stuff that people in Sydney get. So then we worked on the art gallery and the museum and, and we said, we history that put in there. There was a famous black tracker, Eric Riley, who uh, rescued kids in the floods and that around the town. So we, and his nickname was Tracker, so he's a tracker rider. So when we built this bike track around the river, uh, we named it after Tracker Riley. So we did all these type of crime issues that we had I, you know, we've got some programs in that I, I worked in the night patrol helping kids working on the, who was on the streets at midnight and stuff like that. I did a wide range of things and, and just small community things. I set up an African dance company and all those type of things. It put the council to focus on getting jobs, uh, hiring Aboriginal people to work on the council and stuff like that. So it was, uh, it was a great experience. Um, I was on there for 12 years. Uh, you know, got re-elected a couple of times, and then uh, and then my work commitments, I had I uh, had to leave. So uh, about twenty, you know, after the twelfth year, the election was coming up. I moved back to Sydney, and uh, and was working in the headquarters of the of the gas company. Uh, so, but it did twig my political bone. Um, I said I, in, in 1999 I ran for the for the state election for the Labor Party and just got hit at the post and um, and then I uh, a few years after that I got pre-selected for the Senate uh, for the Labor Party but it was the uh, uh, what do you call it Twin Towers attack uh. and that uh, right on the and so normally we elect three senators the Labor Party that year we had, we only elected two and I missed out. Uh, so then I ran for president of the Labor Party and I elected president of the Labor Party and, and was in the national area then and was uh, you know in the newspapers and doing things uh, and stuff. Uh, and uh, yeah, so that's where my and then I went back to uh, gas pipeline building those at the same time. Warren, would would you say that politics was um, a natural a natural calling for you? That it it suits you temperamentally, or would, did you find politics challenging? What was what what was the easiest part of of politics for you, and what was the, what was the hardest part? Uh, well, it, it was easy in the uh, because uh, my father was a strange man. After he came back from the Second World War, uh, he was determined to buy a house, so he bought a house in South Grafton. Uh, mum and dad did, and but it was at four rooms and not four bedrooms, four rooms. So one room was for mum and dad, that was their bedroom. The second room was for the girls, that was their bedroom. They had a bath and a kitchen. Us boys, we slept on the veranda, and uh, eventually, my father, you know, eight boys on the veranda. And then my grandparents come and stayed, lived in this place, so I'm getting it. And so, my father built a um, you know, he closed the veranda and from there. Talking about the cold, I tell you what, winter time, I, you know, my brothers and I got very close passing up on that veranda. But it, <laughs> and so, so he, after dinner, he used to clean the table down and talk about the, what happened that day in the newspapers. He didn't have a TV, so it was in the newspaper. 
and my older siblings, I was number nine of eleven. My older older siblings then would have debates with my father about politics and what should be happening, that type of stuff. And uh, and it, so I just to sit there and just listen to it. And you know, by the time I was six years old, as I could tell you how the Senate voting system operated. You know, as so, uh, and, and also our town, we had a f- former prime minister was a, a was a mayor, and uh, and he was like a member. Member, he was Earl Page, was our local member. Uh, oh wow! And so, uh, so you know, we had this politics around us all the time, and it was uh, so for me, it was a natural thing to go into politics. And, and do things because one of the things I used to do is, you know, some kid that comes and walks to school this big and asks me, "Is it your plan going from this kid at sixteen working in a factory to become a president of Australian Labor Party?" And I thought it's a very good question. I hadn't really thought about it. Uh, but if I would have told my parents I had this plan when I was 16, they probably would have put me in the loony bin. Uh, so I, uh, but what it is, I, I believe in you listen to people, you observe what's happening around you, and then you talk. And so I used to look around and I say, oh, that can, I know how to fix that. So, you know, we've got a problem here, let's fix it. But like when I got on the, on the street patrol at night, but there's kids were on the streets. And the reason I was on the streets wasn't because they had been delinquents, it was just that there house was a dangerous situation. Their parents would be drunk and they'd be it's you know like that scene out of once were warriors when you went to the house and these people were drunk and, and fighting and carrying on. So I said, well we can't take them back home at night. It was too dangerous from so I talked to the local parish priests and we and they had an old church hall that they gave us and we and that's where we used to take the kids and and, and you know uh, uh, set up pinball machines, uh, uh, talk to them about Aboriginal, Aboriginal kids, about Aboriginality and all this type of things. And, and the other kids, we taught them about Aboriginality as well. And, said, and this is where our dance club comes from, actually, in doing that. And, and after everyone was drunk and fell asleep, we took the kids back home. What family. dance club? I missed uh, the dance club. Where did the dance club come oh, in? Oh, uh, the dance club when I come in uh, – because I used to go because I was involved with the rugby league team and I used to play rugby league out there. And uh, we got, um, uh, we used to sit in the pub after training, you know, and, and, and a lot of my mates would be linked and go, oh, you know, we, you know, we're losing our culture. We need to, you know, how do we train our kids and teach them about our culture and everything like that? And we said, we, one by kept on saying, we should form a dance club and teach them Aboriginal dance and stories and all that. And after about the hundredth time of sitting in this pub and listening to this, I pulled that fifty dollars and put it on the counter. I said, Yeah. I said, What's that? I said, That's to put a name in the newspaper. We're gonna start a dance club. And so we had the kids that we were picking up off the street and that'll be our first clients and all that. Anyway, so um I put the ad in the paper and, and we went there and uh, talked to the priest, we got the church hall and and that night a hundred kids turned up and my mates and I looked at each other and said, you must know how to dance. And we said, no. So we couldn't tell the kids about that. So we said, oh, kids, give us your name and your address and your phone number and your mum and dad. <laughs> we'll get back to you. And we'll get back to you next week. You come here next Thursday. 
And they said, oh, okay. So they went off. So the next morning, I, I rung up Bangara Dance Company. And I said, oh, look, this because I was unknown in Sydney there. I, I was just a nobody in the basis of the council in Dubbo. I rung up and said, look, I'm foreign. And, and I set up a, this dance company in Sydney, Dubbo, uh, a dance group with all these young kids. And they said, oh, wow, that's really good news. And I said, yeah, but the problem is none of us know how to dance. And so we and like, can you help us out? And they just laughed and laughed. They thought, you blokes are mad. Anyway, finally, they said, look, we'll pull you back and have a discussion. Anyway, they pulled us back and said, yeah, one of the blokes uh, is, uh, you know, he said he'll volunteer and come up there and teach us how to dance before next Thursday. <laughs> so we had this five-day intensive dance class class. Wow. <laughs> and then we set up this dance company. And, you know, we performed in, uh, over the years in front of the, the UN's uh, health conference in Australia. We did the HIV conference in, um, in Dubbo. We did, oh, and we danced at uh, carnivals and uh, shows and all that type of stuff. And, and, and then the kids started designing their own dance and we got taught them language and all that type of stuff. And so it's... Fun. It was a lot of fun. Five day dance lessons work, and, and some of the kids now they're all adults. They're running their own little dance groups all over Western New South Wales, and stuff, mm. so it's great. It's, uh, it sounds like the scene out of a movie, doesn't it? Where you ring up someone. So I can imagine the guys from the Dish doing something like that. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and it was you know I picked you know, some you know. Uh, you know, speak page and all these these famous dancers and there, and we rung them up out of the blue and just said, you know, teach us how to dance. We only got five yeah. days. <laughs> That's classic. Yeah, and they just fell in love with the kids because they, then we got Bangara come to well, we had the entertainment so we opened up. The, they come and dance there and the Australian ballet. And mm. it was, uh, you know, it was really great. And uh, two of the kids in the dance group went on and danced with Bangara. One of them still dancing with Bangara, both both Smith, and uh, so we had, you know, so it was you know a cute little group, come out mm. of fifty dollar on the bar at a pub, and there we were. But I do crazy stuff like that. Look, if, if someone said to me, "Would you like to do brain surgery?" This place would achieve. I'd do that. Mason might be happy, but I'd, you know, I'd just give it. A go. I'd give it a go. $50 contribution and you're in. Yeah. And so um, I used to do things like that all over the place. So. Oh, this is how yeah, I got my – did you know I had my own TV show as well? Tell us. Uh, what happened was uh, I, I I wanted to uh, promote Aboriginal businesses and that. And it also – so it had two simple things, promoting Aboriginal businesses and, and showing Australians in the cities – that they uh, that Aboriginals are not what you read in the paper every day. There's this great group of people out there doing good things. So I was at this function, this local government function there, and um, uh, Angelo uh, Frangiopoulos, who was the CEO of Sky News, was there, and and I just thought, is is that the head of Sky News? And I said, yeah, that's right. So I walked over to him and I said, oh, look, I'm Warren Mundine. I'd like to do a TV show, and uh, and it's um, to promote Aboriginal people and the good and the good things that Aboriginal people do, and also Aboriginal businesses. And he said, he said, really? And I said, yeah. And he said, 
she gave me she, uh, give me a phone number and he gave me a phone number and I thought and and then he said my um, EA will give you a call. So I thought then I said oh that was pretty cool. So I went went back, went home and two days later this woman rang me up and said oh you got a meeting with Angela about your TV show on Sky Sky News <laughs> and I went oh god okay so <laughs> so I said I better design it so I got this. A4 bit of paper and did a design of the TV show on it and turned up at uh, Sky News in Sydney and and this and all these people are sitting there, you know, producers and directors and script writers and all these audio people and I thought, gee, this, this bloke's taking it serious, you know. So I said, uh, I said, okay. He said, go on, Warren, give us your pitch. And I just read the A4 piece of paper about this TV show we're going to have and he said, you got it, you know, we'll wow. go and get the money. And, and then I uh, ran it for three years on Sky News and Wind TV in the regional areas. Uh, and it, we had uh, very popular ratings and everything. But then, uh, because we fly out to remote communities and show on Aboriginal people and then show on businesses that are happening in that, we were very one of the most expensive shows because we were flying. You know, like you yeah. fly out to some of these communities, it costs you more to fly there than it does to fly to Paris because I had to take the film crew and everything with us. And so when COVID come along, it really destroyed the show because we couldn't travel, and that was sort of the end of my TV yeah. show. <laughs> but it was, but it was fun. So, th so that's an example. I'm just one of these blokes. You know, I didn't, I didn't uh, uh, sort of like sit back and relax you know uh, yeah. uh, you know well, like I, I didn't know angelo from anyone and i just walked up and asked people about things yeah, yeah. He, peter peter to this day watches the reruns of that show do you peter? Peter. <laughs> oh yes yeah, you, you go on youtube the shows are all there if you want to have a look at them they're still there and we should we should check them out yeah did yeah. you manage to picture any from the territory warren Oh, we did a lot from the territory. Yeah. Uh, we yeah. went down to Alice Springs. We went out to uh, uh, the northeast Arnhem Land. Uh, we went uh, in Darwin uh, um, and Catherine. Did shows yeah. in Catherine. Um, so we did. It did quite a quite a few shows there, you know. And we went up and through Pananara up in Western Australia there, and across Kimberley's the Broome, and then yeah. down to Perth and Warren, oh, those everywhere. It's, Are those yeah. businesses still going, or were they severely impacted by COVID too? Some of them were, especially the tourist ones. They were really hit by uh, COVID and that. But they seem to have, you know, some of them died, but a lot, most of them uh, sort of struggled back up again. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. a question. Actually, I wanted to get to Peter is uh, about um, you. You and uh, Chris talked about tourism last week on your weekend show and yeah. uh, and and i was thinking that there are all kinds of things that we could be doing with tourism in the territory um to to reinvigorate or if it needs it um which maybe it does and i, I mm. it sounds like warren's got some some ideas there you just do these things look like uh, cultural tourism is a big thing and people pay big bucks I, I I did I laughed once. I took a, a group of uh, businessmen from Sydney, and because uh, I was in a, a fundraiser, because my wife used to uh, do fundraising for the Royal Hospital for Women, and so uh, you know that we had a men's business night, and I was raffled off, and one of the raffles was Warren Mundine will take your fishing, 
And so I took them up the Aboriginal community on Palm Island and we went across uh, to Phantom Island. What a great name, Phantom Island, where we were fishing. So I rung up the mayor there and I said, look, do you know um, you've got one of the Aboriginals there got a boat? And he said, yeah, sure. Anyway, so we just turned up. Uh, this bloke had a boat and uh, he took us out fishing and then we paid for his petrol. And then when we got back, I gave him the going rate for a, a charter for the day. And he said, oh, no, I was happy to do it free. And he said, no, no, this is a business. You know? mm. So the next day he got it. He came up with the boat the next day. He had sandwiches and drinks and all this stuff. And we went out fishing and caught all this fish. Even I caught a fish, a few red emperors and all that type of stuff. And he was brilliant, and that was, and you know, I went back there five years later, and he's he's now got a charter business, uh, taking people out fishing up around the, uh, the the reefs and and Palm Island there, and uh, and also he he, he used I don't know if you know this, but you heard of a Cut Murray, which is a Torres Strait Islander, um, North Queensland, um, sort of like a hungy where you put hot rocks and you put the food in cook it well he came up with an idea of a mobile hungy uh, cut murray murray where we had gas was it was heating the rocks and they were cooking the the food in a traditional way except for the gas and he used to take him down to the football carnivals and and oh. to all, all the shows and that and he turned that into a business too so so that was uh, that was great for us we thought that was fantastic yeah um, Warren, something you touched and on getting earlier. back to tourism, sorry. And okay. out of that was, you know, uh, we, you know, working with the rangers, the Aboriginal rangers and their cultural stuff, uh, we, we uh, wanted them to, to focus on, okay, that's great. Now you've got this, you're getting paid to look after the country and, and do it in a cultural way and stuff like that. There's a great opportunity because rich people like to, go and um, like the businessmen who come with me and sleep on the beach and go fishing and have a good time and just relax. And so it, taking them on a cultural tour out in the bush where they've got to, you know, survive the crocodiles and learn about culture and, and what the plants and everything is and, and do some fishing and hunting and that, uh, it, it was a, a good way to, to get, cult, uh, get those cultural tours and things up and running, yeah. I bet. And also to highlight, as you said, you know, some of the great things that Aboriginal people are doing yeah. in, in yeah. their homelands. That's mm. right. And, and and for them it was natural too because they, uh, they weren't building this huge resorts or anything like that. They were just taking people out into the bush and teaching yep. them about their culture and teaching them how you survive in the bush and and you do things, you know, and, and yeah. the 60,000 years of their, of their history and that and the uh, you know, night stories, looking at the sky and and, and all that type of thing, yeah. Mm. People um, pay a lot of money for that, don't yeah, they? Yeah, they do. They, they, yeah, yeah, so, for instance, you pay $200 a night in a hotel, these people will pay, you know, a couple of thousand dollars just to be thrown on a beach and, and <laughs> having to survive. Yeah. <laughs> watch out for the crocs. Yeah, watch out for the crocs, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Warren, there's many ways I want to take this, but something you touched on before, um, and Liz won't know this, and our listeners probably won't even know this either, but I actually lived in Dubbo for a while, so I I know the town quite well. And I'm really interested in what you said um, regarding the night patrols because, you know, unless you've been hiding under a rock, 
you'd be well aware that uh, the Northern Territory's got a lot of issues at the moment, particularly yeah. in Darwin and, and uh, Alice Springs, but but also in Catherine. Um, and, and a lot of it relates to uh, Aboriginal youths yeah. who, uh, and, and I say this because the Palmerston Mayor uh, used these exact words to us a couple of years ago and she said, it's safer for these kids to be on the streets 24 hours a day than it is to be at home. And the exact picture you painted is is exactly what we hear. Could you tell us about um, you know some of the things that you did practically uh, to help change that? Because Territorians need to hear it's possible. Well, the the first thing was that uh, you know we, we we focused on the kids and, uh, and and their safety and and the reason why they were on the street. So we just didn't pack them up and send them home. We 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 worked with them and uh, and. Uh, and we got them to learn about their culture and do things, and then we make, package that up with uh, with their um, uh, with their schooling. So getting them to school, uh, they were they uh, uh, learnt their uh, culture and and stories, and also performed at school events and stuff. And that sort of g'd them all up, the, the kids, and they they were really proud about doing that. And, and the teachers used to tell me that every time they mucked up, that the teacher would say, "Well, Mr. Mundine, he, he, you know, he doesn't like kids who muck up, so he might not let you back in the dance group." And they go, <laughs> oh, you know, "It's worse than getting the flogging." And then also, we, you know, we met with the parents and talked to the parents and and stuff like that. And uh, you know, and we, you know, it wasn't done in any look down your nose or talk about parenting stuff it was uh, it was just about you know how they could you know how their kids are good kids how they should be uh, working with them and, and and encouraging them to get an education and that and and uh, and that's what that's what we did we just did very simple things uh on you know working with those i i from that program i actually got asked to sit on the new south wales juvenile crime prevention committee and uh, and I sat on that committee for four years about working out programs and how you do practical things with kids, you know, mm -hmm. you know, and and also common sense things. So you you know you got a kid who's out in the streets at fourteen; he's not going to go back to school. So what we had no. to do is we had to get him into a, a trade type situation, and and while we're doing that, they're learning to read and write and and to do things, yeah, and and. Uh, Piggy Forrest have, uh, was had a, a really fantastic program with uh, um, working with uh, adults, where you know they it, it's almost like the Marines. He, he said sometimes we train people and but we they ain't got a job at it. So Aboriginals become the most trained people in the world. You know, I went out the Bullia when I was doing a gas pipeline out there, and I met this bloke who had more certificates on the wall than. The, a Harvard law professor, but he never had a job, and so what we said, well, that's we've got to put the, the the horse before the cart now because we've got to say you come here, you got this job, uh, and then you go for this program, and uh, and you successful at the pro program end of the program, you got the job, and it was a, a very successful getting. We and it was when I say it's like the Marines. Uh, we we assess people, you know, if they if they had drug and alcohol issues, if they had mental health issues, if the domestic violence issues, uh, they had illiteracy and numeracy issues. If they didn't have licences, and they all went through all that package, 
and, and criminal records, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And 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 normally they would those things would uh, stop you from getting a job. People would say, "Oh my God, this bloke had a criminal record," or "This uh, this person's on drugs." So then we'd set, uh, send them off to these training centres to deal with all those issues. Mm. And and then at the end of the day, if you got through the training centre and that, then you got the job. And so we had, you know, we had people who were formerly in jail and then working in car sales yards and other places and, and, and on, on nurseries, on mining sites and and things like that. How, how it, expensive was this program, Moran? Ah, uh, it, uh, it, it was... Um, it wasn't. It was. Uh, it was cheaper than the doll, really. Um, and so the programs right. were pretty. The pretty. They were pretty good. And and it was all about outcomes. Uh, it, you know. And some people took that journey longer. Of course. You know. Some people with drug and alcohol issues didn't turn up day one, going. Oh well, I'm. You know. <laughs> cured. I'm ready to go. You're ready to go. Put me on the welding crew. You know. <laughs> um, you know, some people took a while to get through that, but th but they knew they had a goal at the end of the day that they were going to get a job, and the job was theirs. Yeah, yeah. So that was some of the things we did, and and uh, and uh, you know, and it's you've got to you've got to like um, re deal with reality because a lot of Aboriginal kids have been busted and, 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 you know, stealing cars or doing something. So then by sitting there and saying, no, once you've got a criminal record, you can't work here, that just cut out so many people. And mm. so we wanted to change that so that they that, that they could become productive citizens for their community and for, for themselves, and then that flows on into the wider community and things like that. So was, and dealing with it, and, and so we dealt with... You know, some people had some, uh, you know, interesting careers as um, in criminality and, and drugs and alcohol and other things. But, you know, we worked with them. Now, I'm not going to say we had a 100% success rate, but we had a majority success rate. Mm. Through all that, you you were motivated by home ownership. You said your father yeah. was motivated by home ownership and having a family is that the is that a big motivator what what is what would you say is well it's most it, important that it's part of uh, you know the best thing i've seen like we, i was born and lived under the first part of my life under the aboriginal Youth protection act and aboriginal welfare board in new south wales uh, the best thing i've ever seen because my mum and dad owned the house you know it wasn't a palace it was owned there the welfare people come up and they used to think they could just walk in aboriginal people's houses and and check if they're clean and check everything's nice and tidy you know well as soon as the bloke come to the come up and one of the like they should just walk in the door as soon as he turned up to walk in the door my mum picked up a broom and started flogging him with the broom <laughs> and chased him out of the house and as she chased him out of the house she said you can't come in here we own this place nice yeah so it wasn't yeah. the government house, wasn't it? That it was their house, and uh, and that's why. And it was a big motivator for us to do that. And I think this is one of the issues that we find in uh, regional and remote Australia, especially in the Northern Territory. And that uh, this idea that you can actually own your own house and you can pick a broom up and chase a person out of the house because it belongs to you. So uh, you know, we you know when I become the prime minister's uh, advisor. Uh, to Abbott and Turnbull, uh, you know, we wanted 
be, uh, make it possible under the Land Rights and Native Title Acts that people who own that country, they can actually build their own home and own that home. And how you do that was through a, through a 99-year leases like they do in Canberra. So we, we come up with this idea of how, you, you know, town planning, you know, you, you this is your retail area, this is your in, industry area, this is the school education area, this is the footy fields and this is where the houses are. And so you could uh, design the, the, the community. So uh, like with diabetes is big, so you design the walking tracks and everything like that so people exercising and and able to deal uh it was some of their diabetes of professor paul zeman who was a professor of diabetes and and and, and uh, cardiovascular disease at uh, baker idi uh institute uh, uh he worked on setting up the um Indigenous uh, uh, Diabetes Centre in, in Alice Springs. Well, here's one of our advisors about how you design things so people can exercise and walk around in their community and, and help get healthy. Uh, we looked at the community stores, you know, the community store, you, you walked along and it had all these fridges full of Coke. Yeah, and 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 it was, and you wonder why people are all obese and were um, on diabetes. And so uh, we worked with uh, the government to, to say, okay, we, you know, we, we'll put water in this, and we'll put, uh, you know, uh, and and so where you had twenty fridges of um, coke, then we we set, we got it down to two fridges of coke and and eighteen fridges of of water and healthy food, and and the other thing we wanted to work on is. Uh, but we didn't get this off the ground uh, because, uh, you know, I went back to the private sector, was uh, about uh, market gardening. Now, everyone thinks of market gardening, they think it's a community project. I said, forget that. It, we, we tried that in Aboriginal communities and it never worked uh, and because uh, and because people could walk into the garden and just pick a piece of fruit and eat it. And we say, you can't do that. And they say, no, we own this garden. So we said, no, what you've got to do is lease that section off to some ab local Aboriginal entrepreneur, he'll get people working in the garden and, and they will sell the fruit. Yeah. You know? And and so because fruit and veggies are, are, are really hard to find in some of these communities. And so we so we could turn something into a business. They're not going to become multi-millionaires, but they're able to, to make money and and the and they were able to protect the market gardens from people coming along and saying, no, this is our land, we can eat anything we like. Yeah. And yeah. Are, are the houses designed differently too for different family configurations? Yeah. Well, one of the first thing you've got to focus on when you've got housing is the wet areas. This is one of the stupid things about government policy in that they'd, they'd get building materials that weren't suited for those climate areas. And so the first thing that happened was you know if the shower broke and or something then the wet areas is where you can keep clean but also if you don't look after them they're a disease area and so so you know your kitchen your laundry and your bathroom toilet that's that's the things you've got to focus on everything else is a luxury you know have yeah. you got one bedroom or you've got five bedrooms that's just a luxury the areas that you've got to concentrate on are the wet areas for the health situations and so that's what we took uh, people thought we were mad so we'd go into a place and, and and it was a house that was almost 
knocked down and everything, but the wet areas, we, we tell you, no, fix the wet areas here first, and then you can build the bedrooms around and what you need or the entertainment area, whatever you want to call it, lounge and stuff like mm. that. Uh, and, and just by doing that, we figured that we could save about $600 million in, in repair and maintenance on some of the Northern Territory housing. And, and then wow. that other money can then be put back into more housing and, you know, and, and more, mm. you know, water is one of the top uh, five things in health, history of health in, in the world is the separation of, of, of clean drinking water and sewerage. You get that, you, you, you've resolved a lot of your problems within that community. And that, and and every doctor in the world will tell you that's in the top five, top five things you need to have health. Mm. And so that's why we focused on the wet areas, uh, and and, uh, and 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 getting those uh, working and operating properly, you know. And also yeah. building the capacity of people, you know. Like I was shocked by some how we built the houses because they're government houses and that. Uh, it we train people to to forget about. That uh, that's the government's house, uh, you know, because because when it, something broke, like you know, my water water and sewage days, I saw a house which the pipes, the sewage pipe was broken and and it was leaking, and so I walked over to the place and I said, look, what you do is you'll get a hessian bag, get a bit of cement, you wrap it around that, that'll block the, the leaking sewage, and then you can go to town and get a proper pipe which you can cut off and replace there. And the bloke turned to me and he said, he said, no, that's, that's, I'm not doing that. And I said, why? And he said, this is a government house. The government's got to come and fix it. <laughs> so right. we de-empowered de people. Uh, we took away their self-reliance. Like when I was growing up, uh, people, you know, they were, they'd be fixing their own house. You know, you know, something broke, they'd fix it. But, but we taught people, oh, this is a government house, therefore the government's got to fix everything. You know, and we've seen lots of that happening. You know, the shower's broken, the, the the toilet's broken, or something like that. And we said, "Well, this is pretty easy to fix." And uh, and they'd go, "No, this government's house. They've got to fix it." Once you get into that mindset, though, it's hard to come back from it. Yes, exactly. It, you've got to spend a lot of time of, of building that uh, self self reliance, self you know, uh, you know, look, uh, repair and maintenance. And I've got another place I went to where we were building a schoolhouse for the teachers because the teachers used to fly in and out, couldn't stay there, and so and they didn't have accommodation. So we went up there and was building this schoolhouse for the teachers. And and I I'll never forget this that we're doing some work, and I turned to this bloke, and he was about 20, 21, 22, and I said, "Can you get me a ruler? I want to measure this thing here." And he Looked at me like, uh, "What's a ruler?" You know, and this is how you know. This is how we disempowered people. And then I just he went to look for the mayor. Yeah, well, <laughs> and he was looking at me. Oh, you're the ruler, aren't you? You're the boss <laughs> man here. And, uh, but it's uh, but you know. So we had to go back to the basics. You know, what's a ruler? How do you do measurements? How do you? Uh, uh, how do you? Uh, you know. You know, do mathematics. How do you do stuff? You know, so very you know, basic, simple things. And 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 once you get people doing that, then they they look after, especially when they own it. Like I, I, you know, I rented places like other people did. And but 
you couldn't do things in it. You know, you couldn't have your own pictures hanging up. You could in that. So, well, when you get your own house, you say, "This is mine. I can do what I like here." Well, that's exactly it, though. You got that from your parents. Yeah, that's you? right. Yeah. So we've got to change generations of that. Mm. Uh, but it, and some people say, "Well, that's tough," and I said, "Well, nothing in life's easy. Uh, it's yep. uh, you've um, uh, it, it is tough, but." Um, but and they say it takes you know it'll take generations. And I say no, it doesn't. It, it, even if it did take generations, if you don't start doing it today, then it's going to take more generations. <laughs> and it's it's a problem in the Northern Territory, Warren, because um, you know we've had successive governments now talking about that a lot of the issues uh, that are affecting society, particularly in the communities. Um, it's going to require generational change yeah. to to fix that. And we had Scott McConnell on uh, last week, who's a former uh, NT independent politician. You may have heard of. Yeah, I've um, heard of him. Yeah, and he's he's an amazing guy. He he grew up uh, in remote communities in uh, the Northern Territory, and while he's a, a white fella, um, he he spent his whole childhood and and formative years uh, in Aboriginal communities and that's who he sort of looks up to and where he takes his lead in life from and he can walk in both worlds and be able to see things from both sides and you know like you he's got that really interesting but strong viewpoint where that generational change as he says that's politicians that need to start doing that and making it right because Everybody's sitting around talking about generational change, just waiting for it to happen. But yeah, someone, it's like some miracle's going to happen. You know, yeah, that all the lights will turn on. They'll be singing and dancing, and and it'll be fixed. No, you got to get off your ass and do it. Do something. A politician's job is to create the environment for that, and uh, that, so that uh, you know, so people uh, are, are more inclusive in that. You know, and 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 feel ownership of it. It's like here. You know, I've got a look around just to make sure he's not hearing me i've got mm. an arsehole arsehole for a, a neighbor but i don't go around and kick his bins over and throw <laughs> bricks through his window because we mm. got this pride in the in in the places we live this suburb that where we live in sydney here so we you know we plant trees and and we uh, mow our lawns we make sure the bins are taken out you know simple things like that mm. uh and th and and that we don't throw bricks through each other's windows and so yeah. and, and and so that you've got to you know how do you how do you get things to happen and and, and move forward the first thing we've got to do is make sure that there's an Aboriginal at the front who's doing it because I can sit here all day talking to Aboriginal kids and saying, you know, you can do this, you can do it, but they're only words. Mm. Uh, when they see an, Ab an Aboriginal kid, an Aboriginal person come in and do it, clean the bins, fix the buildings, uh, teach in the classroom, how important is that? If you get an Aboriginal teacher in the classroom, that is just magic. And yep. Uh, and uh, I, I saw a doctor from Canamble, um, uh, who uh, Aboriginal bloke who went to, and Canamble's a pretty rough place, like the Northern Territory in some towns, and mm. and we and we having trouble in Kempsey, so we took him up then walked in the classroom, and not me, I'm just words, but him, he walked in and, he, and the kids said, "What do you do?" And he said, "I'm a doctor," and I said, "What? <laughs> Aboriginal bloke is a doctor, you know what?" It said, where do you come from? And they said, I said, Canamble. And I went, what? Canamble? That's worse than our town. 
And and then was, you know they started seeing that if a bloke can come from Canamble and become a doctor, yeah, then you know maybe us Kempsey kids can do the same. Yeah, you know it, until they see that it's and it's not real; it's just talk. And so we've got to we've got to have these. In you know I know no offence to footballers and that, but they always seem to be in there to be. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, what do you call it? Role models. Role models. Yeah. But ninety nine point nine percent of people aren't going to end up in in the AFL or, or National Rugby League. Yeah. You know, I remember a talk given by an African American basketball player. Gotten his name, but he was Jack O'Neill. That's right. And he and he did a talk to these um, uh, African American kids in one of these suburbs of New York or Chicago or something. And he said, he said, what do, you, what do you want to do? And all these blokes are going, well, I become NBA champions and all that. And he said, look, you are all champions. He said, but you know how many players are in the NBA? And they said, I don't know, 400, 400 players. Mm -hmm. So out of a population of 12 million African-Americans, you're all going to play basketball in, a, in NBA. It ain't going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so and most of those, and not all, not most, not all of those players are black Americans. Yeah, you know, you got yep. people coming in from Lithuania and Europe, and that yep. they're playing Russia. in, in yep. Russia, and that they play in those leagues too. The vast majority of them are black Americans. But there's only four hundred, and so Amazing. so the odds of that happening. And he said, so you've got to have a plan B. You know, you've got to look at, you know, we're, you know, going, you know getting educated and becoming, uh, you know, looking at something else, you know, uh, like, you know, you know, doing a doctor, a lawyer, a truck driver, a tradie or something, you know, at least do something. Uh, mm. But don't, you know, you know, and also, you know, there's a lot of, there's the, uh, the bloke, Michael Jordan, when he got picked for the uh, NBA, he was the second pick. And people always say, well, if he's the second pick, the first pick must have been fantastic. <laughs> And they, yeah. said, and they said he was, but he got injured in his second game, and that was the end of his career. Wow. Wow. You see? So you yeah. don't know. You could fall over some day and get injured or you get busted a foot or something like that. So no one – I saw the documentary of him. No one knew that this bloke was at university. He was the top basketball player ever, and, and he, got, he got the first pick above Michael Jordan. Mm. But – Second game got injured, and that was the end of his career. Yeah, it's very true. Mm. But now I'm so I'm so pleased you bring up sports because um, mm. it it was something that um, somebody prompted me to ask you uh, before we we started talking to you, and I mentioned I was going to be talking to you, and of course you you have a very uh, famous surname. Um, yes. Are you any relation to the uh, boxers and rugby league players? Of, yeah, of the yeah. Same name? We're all in the same mob in that things. But I, 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 as you can see from my pretty face, I decided not to do boxing. Uh, you know, I left that to the fighting side of the family. <laughs> I decided to become the lover, uh, a lover rather than a fighter. But yeah, we're all the You're same. A good family. looking guy. Yeah. So we're all the sa uh, same mob. Uh, I don't know anyone with the name in Australia. Who's not closely related to me? Yeah. Right. Okay. So, and yeah. so, so it's like Anthony and that. He's my nephew. You got Tony as his father and all that. We're brothers and that. Uh, and so, uh, yeah. 
and you know Karen Mundine, who's head of Reconciliation Australia, that's my niece. Uh, yeah. yeah, so we're a family that seems to be everywhere. John, my brother, uh, he was on the front page of the Australian yesterday because of the art that was being produced by non-Aboriginals in APY lands, and he's a, uh -huh. a curator and a he travelled the world. In fact, he even worked for Donald Trump for a while buying <laughs> Aboriginal art for him. And I said, "Don't tell them too many people that you know." <laughs> and that's back in the eighties. And so you know, and so we, we yeah, we just do things. We do my my yeah. old. I'm I'm working on a book from my old three sisters, and all of them worked in a bank. Can you imagine Aboriginal women, uh, women in the nineteen sixties, working in a bank? Let alone Aboriginal women, and my mm. and my older sister went off to Zurich and you know, married a Swiss guy over there, and then the uh, my second sister she was discovered uh, discovered by David Jones, um, you know, walking walk to work or whatever it was, mm. and she uh, she became a model for David Jones, and this is in the '60s, so it would have been the first Aboriginal model. She's in all the newspapers and all the magazines and everything like that. Wow. And uh, which is probably where you see it, where she got the good looks from for me, and <laughs> the um, and uh, uh, and when they had the 170th anniversary of David Jones operating as a department store, they they had an exhibition of her, yeah. uh, and, and so uh, my other sister, she was you know in the public service commission, federal and state, uh, getting jobs, fighting for jobs for Aboriginals in the public service, and that. So you know we're a bit of a family of just doers. We just do things, you know. Mm. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> speaking of doing, I'm really interested in uh, hearing about because uh, when I read your bio, uh, I thought it's very unusual um, for many people in political circles to switch from one major party to the other. And I'm really interested to hear were you a labor family growing up was was that your background yeah, was that was that where you're entrenched yeah yeah because when my father uh, and mum brought that first house uh, he uh, in New South Wales like the territory and other places they you know they talk about the stolen wages and that he he, he didn't get the full wage so the person standing next to him as a white fellow would get a hundred dollars for argument's sake he'd only get forty dollars. And the other mm. money was went off was taken by the government. Some blokes working on cattle stations that didn't even get any money. They they were just given food and, and that and and accommodation, and their money went to the, the protector of Aboriginals in each state. And and of course they never saw the money again. It was supposed to be held in trust. Mm. Uh, and and so uh, you know my dad knew he wasn't going to be a, able to buy a house and getting only 40% of what the, the white followers getting paid. So he, uh, he went with the uh, approach the AWU, the Australian Workers' Union. They got him a full pay, was then helped him buy the house. And wow. so he became a very staunch unionist and a very staunch labour man. Uh, and, and, in fact, after dinner, he used to clean the table down and, and have chats with my older siblings about politics and, and labour. So I come from that very strong... Labor background, um, working class labor, and uh, and but at the same time, I was I was always 
very aspirational my parents and that talked about so it was so we're more hawk eating type labor yes about aspiration about you know uh, building your future for yourself and 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 and, and doing uh, doing that and also helping other people as well do it so so we considered ourselves very uh, hawk eating uh, labor people and so uh, after I was president of the Labor Party, and that we, um, I could see it moving to the left, further to the left, and that, and I didn't really quit. Actually, I, I, I um, uh, my, I, they send you an email saying, "Are you going to renew your membership?" And I sort of looked at it, and I looked at my wife, and I said, "I don't know if I'm going to renew my membership." And she said, "Well, if you don't want to renew it, don't." And <laughs> so I didn't. But if you would have asked me to sign a piece of paper and say I resigned, I, I doubt I would have done that. But right. uh, so, and then I thought that was it. Politics was finished. I'm just going to go out and keep working and doing what I'm doing and and having fun. And uh, and then uh, Tony Abbott rang me a couple of years later, and he said, "I I want you to." Uh, I'm setting up this Prime Minister's Indigenous Advisory Council. I want you to chair it. And I said, uh, I said, I don't, I don't know about that. Anyway, so he kept on bringing me and talking, and then finally I said, okay, but I want it done the way I want it done. And he said, okay, well, how do you want to do it? And I said, I want everything wrapped in economic development. So whether it's health, education, whatever, it's it's leading to economic development in your, in their communities and economic prosperity for them so they get an education that will help them get a jobs they will get that it will run a business how we get investment in the, in the communities and that and he's, anyway he said oh, okay you can do that so we we did all these uh, uh, so that's what got me back working but i still was not a member of a party at the time and i stayed out of that party politics and it helped me talk to the labor people and, and talk to the uh, coalition people yeah. and uh, and then finally 2018 20, end of 2018 Scott Morrison rang me up and he said look he said you know you know would you you know you were mayor of Dubbo you, you must still have a tinkling for politics and I said well yeah, yeah sure I'm always interested in everything and he said well I want you to join the Liberal Party and and mm -hmm. we'll set you up in a seat and I said anyway I sort of said i'll think about it and i and like running for council in dubbo i forgot about it and <laughs> and then at christmas just after christmas he rang me back again he said mate the election's on in a couple of months you know you make up your mind and i said oh, okay i'll give it a go so i did uh it was a mistake i, I admit that because i uh, i was used to the labor party when they when they Prime Minister or the leader of the party drops into a seat, then they give you this machinery that's already there to help you win that seat. Uh, the, the Libs didn't do that. They just sort of dropped me in their seat and I'm looking around and I'm going, where's my machinery to help me win this seat? And, yeah, so it was a bit of a disaster. Uh, we did well in the in the vote, but it was, uh, you know, we lost it by a few thousand votes. But um, I, I just had no people well you said nothing and yep. so uh, yep. that was difficult but i but the, th the thing wasn't difficult for me because i've always been a supporter of self-determination by economic development uh, i don't know any race of people that ever got out of poverty 
about having an economy and uh, having a skilled, educated class of people, whether it be trades, whether it's just skilled plant operators or doctors or lawyers or whatever. Uh, I don't know any group of people in the history of humanity that ever got out of poverty about, uh, uh, you know, about having, doing that. And so I was always, uh, I read, read a lot of books on uh, Keynes in and, and, and Milton Friedman, the School of Chicago. I, I looked at Ch South Korea because I was interested in what if you've been invaded and your society has been crushed, how do you how do you rebuild your society? And and in South Korea, it was after the Korean War, 1952, that uh, people were eating grass and starving. Wow. And, uh, and then within 16 years, they were first world country. That's why mm -hmm. I don't believe this thing is generational change. I, I reckon if you get the foundations in the first seven years, you got them for life. You can you can make a huge difference. So I learned what the South Koreans did. I learned what the Japanese did, you know, setting up the Minji restoration and becoming an economic power. The only problem they did was they decided to model their uh, military on the Prussians. And, and, of course, that got them into a lot of wars because yeah, <laughs> it's uh, – uh, so, uh, then you looked. Uh, then you, so I looked at Asian countries. I looked at Europeans. I looked at North and South America, and, that, and, I, and I've come to the conclusion that you know, like with Hawke and Keating, you know, you had to have economic reform. You never stop reforming because you know times change, economies globally change, and stuff. And you've got to focus on uh, the environment where people can thrive and do their own thing. And, yep. And so I've become a very much uh, a believer in it. I believe that we should be able, and if an Aboriginal bloke wants to own his own home, then he should be able to do it. If, if he wants to uh, uh, set up a tourist industry with uh, with some of his mates, you know, in the ranger program, he should be able to do it, or she should be able to do it. If they, uh, if they uh, want to uh, do the local rubbish collection, they should be able to do it, set it up as a business and do things and that. Uh, I think we uh, uh, restrict Aboriginals on their own country too much. We don't allow them to do things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have to get back from the sense that isn't just a sense in the Aboriginal community, but it's, you know, throughout every welfare state that the government yeah. is there to look after us. Yeah. Well, there's nothing, not, the problem isn't the, the full welfare. Australians and taxpayers and that we are very generous. We always will always look after someone who's fallen on hard times or had problems, and is and and we we will help them get back to work and we'll help them get back to get their life back in 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 shape. The problem with what we've developed since the nineteen seventies with our welfare state and it's a global issue as you just pointed out, is that uh, people have become dependent on it. And 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 uh, become reliant on it, you know. Like you know, it, oh, my sister and I used to joke all the time about my our more radical mates who wanted to drive the white people back into the sea and 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 and, and, and regain the country. And 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 we were laughing. We said we could imagine them sitting around a fire talking about, you know, how we're going to get, you know get guns and drive back in the sea and then some bloke would stand up and go, I oh, you know what we can do. 
where, where can we get a government grant to buy the guns? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that's and that's what's happened, you know. People, so, and it's and it's yeah. You know, and also, kids aren't stupid. So, so you know, I saw my father get up and go to work, my mother, and I saw all of them go, and go to work. So to me, that was natural. Uh, but you know, kids aren't going to get you know, like your father's sitting on the couch or the mother's sitting on the couch with a bong. Uh, yeah. And screaming at them, going, you got to get educated, you got to get a job. Well, they're not, they're just going to look at them and say, you didn't get educated. You, you know, you know you've got to show leadership. Kids learn more from watching you and observing what you're doing than actually what you're saying to them. And they also, they also listen intently. And I'll tell you, oh, yeah. I was absolutely gobsmacked. If it wasn't today, it was yesterday. I was travelling in the car with my 12-year-old daughter going to pick up the four-year-old yeah. and I don't even know how this conversation came up but I was gobsmacked by it and we we must have been talking about welfare in the last few weeks and how it worked and, you know, I obviously responded. It's amazing how you say things and you don't realise till afterwards. And I said to my 12-year-old, so, you know, do you have any idea what you might might like to do when you leave school? And she said, yeah, I'm, I'm not getting a job. And I said, what? She goes, yeah, no, I'm, I'm not getting a job. I said, oh, and why is that? She said, oh, because you told me last week that nobody in this country would get left behind. Nobody has to worry about <laughs> being homeless because the state will look after you. I said, you are getting a job. And I did say that, but that's not for you or me. That's for people, as Warren said, who've fallen on hard times and can't help themselves. And you help them to get back on their feet and, and, and move. Now, we've got the sad thing is we've got about four generations of people who have never had jobs. So yeah. when I walk into the community and talk about jobs, I'm an alien. Yeah. The norm is that you don't have a job. My father never had a job. My grandfather never had a job. You're the alien. <laughs> Can we discuss that for a minute? Because I'm sure it was Scott McConnell who brought this up. And you know, this date's dates back to the Whitlam era, but yeah. in the Northern Territory, uh, the, the dole is referred to quite simply as sit-down money. Correct. And there are generations of people who, as you said, four generations who've never had a job, and as you also said, their kids and their kids and now their kids have seen nobody ever get up, go to work, and yeah. yet money still rolls in every two weeks. And, yeah. you know, how do we change this? Yeah, well, it's it's uh, it's it's a it's an interesting uh, situation because that that term sit down funny money and uh, I don't know if you heard the story. The story was that when I was a kid, you know, all I, I never knew an Aboriginal didn't have a job. Yeah, I yeah. never knew an Aboriginal didn't have a job. They were working on cattle stations or they were working on farms or they were working as, as roustabouts or shearers, tough jobs, but they had a job. Or the, or the, the, the mum and dad, uh, mum and that were going and cleaning the house and, or uh, uh, washing the sheets from the ambulance and all that, or the hospital and stuff. They all had jobs. They weren't high-paying jobs or anything. But they had jobs, and they were very proud of proud of those jobs. And then, of course, when two things come together, one was equal pay. Now, 
they had to get equal pay. You can't have to be paying you know, like my dad. Yeah, he's a hundred dollars for you and forty dollars for you. Yeah, but yeah. what it caused it was a it was a perfect storm because then welfare come at the same time, and so you had people who lost their jobs on on the farms and that, and uh, and and they were living on the fringe of towns, and then welfare turned up and they said and uh, these these people were tough. People, you know, you can imagine working on a cattle station in nineteen sixties and fifties and early seventies. Anyway, they uh, and the, they turned up and said, uh, "You've lost your job." And they say, "Yeah." And they say, "We're gonna, well, we'll pay you, and they'll give you money." And they were sitting there going, "What?" And said, <laughs> "We will give you money." And and so why what? If, if we lose our jobs, you're going to give us money. We just don't have to do anything. And they said, "No, no." We'll give you money. So if I come here and sit down and do nothing, then you're going to pay us. And they, and they just couldn't get it for their psyche because they these people were working hard all their lives, and all of a sudden someone comes along and goes, "Here's money for nothing." And that's mm -hmm. where the term "sit down" is because they said, "What you, we sit down and do nothing, and you pay mm -hmm. us." Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the second part of that story was those old fellas. They said, "If if." If you are serious about this, it's going to destroy our society. Yeah, right. And they were right. Yeah. Because yeah. once people are sitting down doing, because these are you know, proud hunter and gatherers, you know, for thousands of years and, and then mm. working on cattle stations and all that stuff and keeping the economy going. And uh, These were very proud, hardworking people. And within a generation of welfare, it was stuffed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was certainly the the way it was uh, expressed to me is that prior to that happening is that essentially all Aboriginal people had jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, so many of the the men were out on stations and you know w working with landowners and so forth, yeah. but in in such um, you know meaningful positions and and uh, you know things that they were proud of. Yeah. Well, you've heard of the Chevelles, you know that filmmakers in it and they were uh, uh, light horsemen in the first world war uh, yep. uh, they they owned the property up near our property that you know the Yugobar cattle station where we were my family worked well the Savelles are up at Tablin and they and and they had the head stockman there was Aboriginal man and yep. he, and, he, and the story goes that he taught Taught them how to ride horses and and do stuff, and that's why they become famous in with the, with the light horse in, in the First wow. World War, and then they become filmmakers and so on. It was, yeah. uh, so, you know, they were the Aboriginal people, and they still taught. That was 1916, 1915, that, and people yeah. up in that country, black and white, still talk about those Aboriginal stockmen. Mm. Yeah, they're famous. Working on those lands and doing that work. And and yeah. that's and that's it's amazing, uh, you know. But um, yeah, the big thing is that well, we do need welfare reform. Uh, you know, we'll always help people who are, are falling on hard times. So, you know, not mm. their fault or something happens. They got redundant or they, well, they fell off a truck and broke a leg and that sort of stuffed them up. That we'll always help people like that, mm. but. At the same time, it's got to be about helping them back get back to their normal life again. Yeah, 
And that's yeah. what it's about, helping them get yeah. back to their normal life. And in the beginning, it's going to be tough doing that because it, and you've got four generations of people who have never worked. And then, you, then you're saying to them, okay, we want you to get back to work. It's going to be tough to do that. But we're going to have to do things like that. Uh, we, don't we have an ethos now of, hey, we, you know, what sort of a chump am I working for a living when, <laughs> you know... <laughs> What are we doing well, you're that? a well, you're a professor, so yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a bit nobody feels sorry for me. <laughs> no, <laughs> sorry, but uh, but yeah, that's right. So, but you've got to, you know, it's like what the, the problems that are happening in. We've got to look at the real issues. The problems with the alcohol and the kids in the street and the and the crimes that are being committed, say in Alice Springs, are these kids that are coming off the homelands. So we've got to focus on why are they doing that? What's happening in the homelands for them to, to get to Alice Springs and do all this stuff? Alcohol, why are they, drink, why are they all on the alcohol out there? And that? Focus on mm. the real issue. Uh, the, the alcohol, the crime and everything else is a result of something that's happened before that. Yeah. Okay, and tell us that Tell us that story, Warren. Well, that story is 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 pretty simple. We uh, we've got to fight, and some of it's going to be really tough. I did. I, I was the uh, co-chair of the uh, sexual abuse of children in New South Wales, and I can tell you, after two to three weeks, I needed therapy yeah. uh, because it was so rampant and and so common. It, what it's not funny uh, the sexual abuse. You, know, you talk about the Catholic Church and that. Well, in the family, it's even worse. And mm. so, so we've got to confront that, you know, those young, you know, those young kids uh, and that, 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 you know, when I did the inquiry in the South Australian prisons, uh, there were, I reckon it was almost 100% of the, all those prisoners have been sexually abused as kids. Wow. Uh, and especially women. Women, mm. amazing statistics. Mental health, um, and that, uh, you know, uh, people who have lost their meaning of life. You know, you know, here you are, this strong cultural men, and you've lost your meaning of life there. Where, so, where did where did the sexual abuse start? What was the, what's the? It goes back. It goes back to the beginning, really. Uh, it's sort of like uh, what come first, the chicken or the egg? You know, Is, it, it, I know towns where you have this sexual abuse in New South Wales, and when you track it back. Uh, some of it, especially around Tyree and Kempsey, some of it come out of the uh, of the boys' homes. They were right. sent to boys' homes. They were abused in the boys' homes, and then they got released as eighteen-year-olds. And and not all people who are abused become abusers, but yeah. all abusers had been abused. That's just a, that's just a fact. And so we've got to deal with that. And how do we get around that and help people get around that? Uh, uh, situation now a lot of and as we've seen in the northern church a lot of people don't want to talk about it no like, no if someone sticks their head up and complains about it, they get called racist or they get beaten up uh, you know it, it's you know there's a reason why it was the statistics for women who are uh, domestic violence and it's something like was it 30 31 times more likely you're an aboriginal than if you're non-aboriginal we can't, so why is we that, can't, why is just, that one? Because why that's where you have numbers? the breaking down of social norms. Right. 
it's like my mate next door. I don't go and kick his garbage bin. Yeah. But I know you want to. We know you. Oh, yeah. I, I'm <laughs> talking, this is my therapy by talking about it. So that by talking about it, that's stopping me from doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Except if someone does throw his brick through his window, it wasn't me. <laughs> it wasn't you. I, I better say, I'll make that quite clear now. Some, someone else. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, mm. um, but, but yeah, it, it's about getting uh, social norms back into the communities. Yeah, uh, and and you know, parent parental responsibilities and stuff like that. Um, they're not easy to do, but you got to you got to you got to give it a go and and do it. You know, teaching you know, like young girls. You know, I, I when uh, Woolworths got in trouble over their Dan Murphy store at uh, in Darwin, mm. uh, in a Bogart community, they. Um, they come to me and they said, what should we do? Is it scholarships and stuff? I said, forget about all that. Put your money into into women's health, young girls' yeah. health. Yeah. And, and they said, why? And I said, well, the issues is that you get, what you're having in these communities is girls at 14 and 16 and 12 having babies. So babies having babies. And then you, you look at that uh, Mr. Walker bloke who got shot by the police officer at Ewan Demu. He never had a chance since from conception. His mother was 14 or 15. She was petrol snipper. She was uh, alcoholic and, and she had been sexually abused and brutalised from her birth. Mm. And so, he, so he, he, he pops out. She, he's abandoned at birth. And then he's passed around for relative after relative after relative who sexually abuse him, physically abuse him, mentally abuse him. And then mm. you wonder why at 18 this bloke is a monster. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, so I said to him, go and, and focus on that so that you have healthy women, not babies, healthy women who are having healthy babies. Yeah. And then uh, – uh, uh, and the women, the mothers are living in a safe community where they're not being bashed and, and abused. So the baby's not being bashed and abused and that the baby then grows up, gets educated, living in a healthy, safe community. And that's what you've got to work on. So are you saying, Warren, that, that essentially that type of behaviour is normalised because the percentages of that type of thing happening in those communities it, it are so high? It, yeah, you, you, you can't ignore the statistics. You know, the statistics are, are massively high. Uh, and you're not like talk, talking about 1% or 2%. You're talking, you know, 20%, 30%. And so you look at um, – you, you can't ignore that, but at the same time you, you can't lock everyone up. Yeah. You, you need good – you need – don't you need good role models? Exactly. Who are the role models? And, models. and also, we've got to stop locking kids up. I, mm -hmm. I was a very strong bloke when I went on that juvenile crime prevention committee. You know, it's kids play up, lock them up. I, after look, looking at the research in, in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, United States and UK, and the reason we picked those areas because we had the same legal system, right? Yeah. And so we... I come to the conclusion uh, uh, detention centres for kids are just training grounds for criminals. You if you lock them up, if you, if you lock them up, eighty percent of them you've got for life. Mm. 
you've got them for yeah. life. They go out and commit more crimes, do more crimes, more crimes, and they, and, and they spend most of their life in jail. But if you put them in a diversionary rope program where you don't lock them up, but you put them in a, in a tough love program, work mm. education, and it has to be work education uh, and discipline, then uh, you don't, 80, the statistics told us that 80% of them you never see again. Yeah, we, we talked to someone, I can't remember who it is now, but a while ago, who was advocating, you know, you mentioned the Aboriginal stockman. Mm. Who, this person was advocating exactly as you just described, these sort of tough love camps mm. uh, on stations. And mm. the the statistics for those that turn their lives around are, are through the roof. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you, you, you know, you get in a... In a you actually just and it's done within a short period of time. You mm. know, we're talking. Uh, I'm talking about probably six months to three years. You flip yeah. them over, and it's just and it, and so this idea that is want to wait to the next generation. You know, yeah, is, 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 is where do you get the, where do you get the commitment? Where do you get the impetus? Where do you get the people well, and to make it happen? For you know, in in the old days, we could see a government could say we're we're doing the Works Project Administration. Everybody's doing this. It's going to happen. Boom, 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 and it happens. But now it seems we can't marshal the commitment and no. the bipartisan support for anything. Well, look at look at and you're right. Look at the politicians we got now. Uh, <laughs> you know you. Every just about every Aboriginal organisation in Alice Springs said, "Do not lift the frog bands. Do not lift yes. the frog bands." And guess what? Because of ideological focus, yep, they lifted the frog bands, and three months later, they had to reverse it. Mm. <laughs> so, who knew? Who, who would have guessed that? With, with $250 million to spend. Yeah, yeah, which they're still looking for. No, no one knows what's happened to the $250 million. Uh, look, I just uh, I just money isn't the actual issue. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, I always believe that once you start off a conversation about money, then you're stuck with the conversation about money. Yeah. Start off about what is your outcome. Start the mm -hmm. conversation about the outcome. And then, of course, money's got to be involved in it. But but what money does is is just gets us focusing on the money. Well, if you start talking about reducing crime, having healthy kids, having healthy mothers, and that, then you know what you're doing, and and then you say, okay, well, to do that, we need X amount of dollars, and, and this is how, where we're going to spend. But once you start to, see, someone just stands up and says, look, we need fifty million dollars. Yeah, that, that's what that's all people are going to concentrate on. Fifty million dollars. Uh, you know, you may need fifty million dollars, but you've got to start the conversation about what is the outcome we want. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that two hundred and fifty million dollars that we all laugh about, um, and I wasn't at the table. Liz wasn't at the table, and Warren, I presume you weren't. No, none of us were there. It, it got pretty quickly known that that the feds decided to hand over two hundred and fifty million dollars uh, to the NT government. No one knows how that number was plucked yeah, from. Where did it get plucked out of the air? You know. Yeah, <laughs> and and what it equates to, and seemingly there was there was no conditions on how it was spent. So, yeah. how did we know that it was two hundred fifty? I mean, we know it's two hundred fifty million, but how do we know that two hundred fifty million was going to be the cure? Yeah. It could have been half a billion. 
had it, it could have been only a hundred million. We don't know. We don't know how mm-hmm. they worked it out and how and what the outcomes they were aiming for. No. You know? So this is no. where the problem comes from. You know, you, you mm-hmm. you've got to you've got to focus on outcomes. And that's what I did when I was head of the Prime Minister's advisory. Mm-hmm. You know what we did, right? There's when we got the front desk, there was 150 Aboriginal programs to help Aboriginal, 150 of them. And some of them are overlapping and some are this and some, they're tripping over each other. And Warren, are these all at the federal level? Sorry. At the federal level, sorry, yeah. right? Yeah. So we, we looked at it and said, let's just break them down to five. Instead of having 25 or 30 health programs, you've got health. Yeah. You've got education. You've got land and culture. Uh, you've got jobs and economic development. And you've got community safety. That's the five programs. Then we, w- then we said, okay, let's look at what outcomes, and it's going to be different from town to town to community to community and region to region. You know, this is another problem we have in Aboriginal affairs is we treat all Aboriginals the same. You know, yeah. they're, not, they're not all the same. You've got some bloke, poor bloke, with his ass hanging out at, at, out the back of you and Demu. There's some bloke sitting in, in Pitt Street in Sydney as a lawyer. <laughs> not all the same. So let's start focusing on 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 uh, what that the differentiality and how we work with that. Uh, the big one of the things we looked at was the, the the biggest gap was not between black and white people. It was between Aboriginals in the bush and remote areas and Aboriginals in the city. That was the biggest gap. So you had people dying at 45 living in in remote communities while people in Sydney were living to be 80 or 90. Yeah. And so so, so how can you just – how do you have a program that's – you know, working, you can't. You've got to yep. focus on, okay, we've got to do a thing for the 90-year-olds, but we've got to do things to stop people dying at 45. Yeah. You know? And that's what, yeah. and that, this is what drives me mad. You said you can't have uh, one shoe fits all. It's, you've got to actually look at the reality on the ground and work from there. Do you think federal governments do that? They say they do. I've worked. Um, maybe I've become a cynic too. So you got to take that with a, you know, a, a salt and pepper. It, it is. Um, uh, I, I would not. I, I could not believe how much money is wasted. And the Productivity Commission in 2017 actually said that they said that more than 75% of money doesn't even for Aboriginal affairs does not even leave Canberra. Really? Does not even leave Camp, let alone Sydney, Melbourne. Darwin, you get to that. Of course, it's soaked up by the administration. If I ran yeah. my business where seventy-five percent of my expenditure was administration, I'd go yeah. bankrupt. Correct. You've got to, you know, the money's got to hit the ground. You this idea that you know, like with the voice, you know, you got regions and you got and you got federal, and that's a waste of time. All you're doing is building bureaucracies, and you're also over cutting out the real leadership at the bottom level. Mm. To build capacity of people, that you've got to recognise the real leadership in those just traditional societies and those mm. ones who are half 
like that and ones that have got moved on to other areas. You've got to, and you've got to work with those power structures at that le local level. You don't have the local level power structure, then you whack a bureaucracy over the top of it. So, Warren, let's talk about the voice because that's one of the main reasons why we got you here. And, and thanks for telling us about your background and all that because that really helps for us to understand, you know, where you're coming from. But um, based on uh, my reading and understanding, you you are one of uh, quite a high-profile group of people who have, have come out against the voice and the concept of it. Um, could you please explain to the idiots like me Exactly what the voice is, uh, what the proposal mate, is, and yeah. why you disagree with it. I tell you something about business: when you walk into a room and, you, and there's all these people working on widgets, and you see an idiot sitting in the corner trying to fiddle around with a block of wood, <laughs> follow that idiot. He'll probably make the money. <laughs> so it's not bad being an idiot. Look, the issue for me, and, and people would know, or if, even if they don't know, is that in the beginning I was a supporter. Uh, sat there said, okay, we've got to, how do we do things? But when I was talking about local and regions, I was actually talking about First Nation people, the traditional owners. Uh, I was talking about them uh, because, in, in a, of course, the voice is not a cultural thing. The traditional owners, the people who are the custodians of the land, is the only ones who can speak for the land. I can't yeah. speak for Yungul or, 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 or uh, you, you know, some other Aboriginal group, I can only speak for mine. You know, that's, that's, that's our culture. And so, and, and also currently at this moment, and you saw what happened to poor old uh, Triggy Forrest. Yeah, I feel sorry mm. for him, poor billionaire. <laughs> and he, the Aboriginal people on the ground stopped him from irrigating a river. And so, so when people tell me there's Aboriginals don't have a voice, that's a bloody powerful voice. They just there's nothing you can do in this country, even in Sydney, without Aboriginal people uh, being involved, making sure that cultural heritage is looked after. There's no damage to that. Uh, looking at uh, Aboriginals, how do they benefit off these projects? Uh, a whole wide range of things that you can't like. I, I, you know, I've worked in the mining industry, the energy industry, and construction, and that, all that. There's nothing that in the last thirty years that you can do without the the, uh, the permission of the, the not the negotiations and the consulting of Aboriginal people. Nothing. Mm. So what's the what's the key reason? Is it an emotional reason? Is it giving power to the elites? Is it that it's based on some specious sort of a categorization? Is it that you're cha you, you're not comfortable with changing the constitution? What's the key reason that oh, you think the voice is damaging? Uh, there's several. It's 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 flawed in the beginning. It's built on a falsehood. Uh, that Aboriginal people uh, don't have a voice and never had a voice. Well, that's not true. We know through the land rights and native title process that they have a lot of power and a lot of voice. Uh, we've also uh, so that's built on a fallacy. Uh, the other thing is that uh, if if it's if it's about our culture and our cultural survival and that, then why aren't we recognising our traditional cultures? Why but does the voice prevent that? It does because here's the here they are now, 
First Nation people, if you, you try and build a mine in the Northern Territory, who do you got to talk to? First Nation people, and you got to go and have a chat to them. You got to consult with them. Mm. And if you don't, and then, do that, don't, and then the mining companies do what they want to anyway, right? No, they don't. Okay. They have to go through a whole wide range. Look at Ranger. Ranger. Why did Ranger Mine close? Ranger Mine still got three hundred years worth of uranium in it. It closed because the Mirren people said, "We don't want the mine there anymore." Yeah. So I guess my, what I what I don't understand is how how an additional layer of consultation of input of representation would be damaging to indigenous people's interests. Oh, so you you think that having a bureaucracy put on top of in, uh, traditional <laughs> people is 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 the answer? Is that what you're saying? I, don't, I well, when you put it that way, <laughs> plead the fifth, plead the fifth, lead, bail out, <laughs> and that's sort of the madness. Is you got the here they are doing deals and and telling people to piss off or doing deals and fighting them in courts. You know, you know that like James Price Point, for, for example. The, the laws of this country said that James Price Point should be built. Why isn't it built? Because the Aboriginal people there fought it and they mm -hmm. won, okay? So this idea that they don't have voices is ridiculous. It's like every other, every other people. I'm getting shouted at by my wife and want a cup of tea. Anyway, so, so you yeah. think the damaging aspect is that it's it creates more bureaucracy. More bureaucracy. So here you got these people here. They need to have experts in that, and and because you know some of them can't speak English, they've got the English as the fourth language, or they, are, or you know they're not lawyers, experts. Or that. So they're going to need these experts. So they got this bureaucracy working for them now, and so what happens? You get this this re regional body, they're going to have to have experts and everyone uh, helping them make decisions and do things. And then you've got the federal body who's got to have experts and helping people do that. So all of a sudden you've built, you know, I, I, off the top of my head, you, you probably built a $300 million uh, bureaucracy. Well, you know, Peter Peter knows I like to talk about de Tocqueville whenever I get the chance. And he talked about, you know, a paid bureaucracy being, you know, being being a sign of healthy liberal democracy, but it was also um, potentially its its downfall, its its undoing, was the 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 proliferation of bureaucracy is the undoing of of a healthy democracy as well. Yeah, well, look, I'm not an academic, I'm just a, as some as. Linda Burney said about me, I'm just a simple fitter and turner. Uh, I'm a practical person. I, I'm about results. Uh, so, you know, philosophy and all that stuff's wonderful things. But I, but I want philosophy is one of the things that lifted the grog ban. <laughs> yeah. So well, I, well, I, it's it's a it's a huge bureaucracy that isn't working as well as it should. I, I've never seen any huge bureaucracy that worked well. Uh, anywhere, uh, it, it disempowers people at the local levels. I'm a I'm, I'm a sovereignty person, so those Aboriginal people on the ground—that's their land. They've it's been in their hands for sixty thousand years, for argument's sake. Why do Why do they have to now give up 
that power to a regional body. Are they giving up that power necessarily? Well, yeah, when you when you when you do the day to day uh, operations of it, where this body determines funding. Uh, this body, uh, you know, has the voice of governments and telling them what they got to do. And because this is one of the reasons I don't want it in the constitution, because once it's in the constitution, uh, it, you you've got to actually consult with that body, whether you like it or not. So mm -hmm. we're we're at the moment, mining companies and um, governments that they want to build a road or build a bridge or a, a wharf, they go directly to the the Aboriginal owners of that place, then what happens uh, now you're going to have to this over the top of it and that has to be that voice has to be taken serious because it's in the constitution. So, you, so all of a sudden all the mining and the government agencies are trying to build bridges and right have to go through that body to get to these people. Do you think that they're, do that they're doing that as a way of them not having to deal directly with negotiating with Aboriginal people? I mean, I don't see the point of why you have that extra bureaucracy unless it's taking the burden away from the governments or the, the businesses. I, I, I can be very cynical and, and say, which is unusual for me, uh, what has happened in the last 15 years uh, you have to, um, I've been talking, you know, is that in the, we've been, Labor and the Coalition have been pushing this economic development barra about, as I said, my philosophy is I have never seen anyone get out of poverty without an economy. And so they've been pushing that for, for Aboriginal communities. In 2015, the 1st of July, the Aboriginal business sector was worth $6.2 million. Here we are eight years later, and, and two weeks ago, uh, the, the Productivity Commission and the, and, uh, the um, National, Indigenous, uh, National Indigenous Australians Agency, it's, the Aboriginal business sector is worth $8.7 billion. So in eight years, wow. $6.2 million to eight. Point seven billion. It's created forty-five thousand jobs within that industry. It it has uh, created three three and a half thousand uh, uh, Aboriginal businesses. Uh, they're now some of these businesses starting to export, uh, and and it, this is growing at a 37 percent annual rate. Sorry, what year? I, I, what year was the six hundred million? What year was that? Two thousand fifteen. Six million. Six point two million. And so, in the, from that program that we, we set up, and even knocked me over how quickly it grew. You know, eight. You know, six point two million to eight point seven billion in eight years. That is just unbelievable. And yet, they were able to do that. The, the issue. This is where my cynicism comes in. Because of this growth, where where people are self-determining themselves by getting economic power, I, I think some of these organisations and some of these groups have suddenly found out that they're going to lose power. So how do you no. keep, how do you keep control? Set up this constitutional thing. 
You know, like I've never heard an argument yet outside of the argument that uh, that they want it in the constitution, so governments can't get rid of them. Which is, so even if it works or doesn't work or whatever it needs, we can't get rid of the bloody thing. Uh, we're stuck with it unless we have another referendum, and we all know that referendums fail very easily. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so, so, uh, my, so that kicks in. That, that's the only because any other argument they put forward doesn't make sense. You know, you have it in the constitution, so the governments can't get rid of it. That makes sense to me. You mm. don't uh, otherwise. But what practical service? What practical thing are they going to do? You know, even the people on the yes campaign, lawyers, tell you that uh, we'll be in court. For, for decades, arguing over some of the things that the voice says. Yeah. Is that why yeah. they're voting yes? The, the lawyers to keep themselves in business? Well, there's, there's, I know, well, I'm in the mining industry, for instance, and I know at the mining level, uh, people like BHP, Rio, and, and that are supporting it because they're, they're nervous that if they don't, then uh, when they go and ask for a mine project on Aboriginal land, they won't get it. I, but don't I those big companies just do uh, like they did with the carbon tax and that is that is go in and uh, negotiate separately for themselves? Well, you, 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 you have to go. You'll have to go through these new regional bodies. And this, mm. is, this is the thing that I'm sitting there going, why did, would you have, you know, Aboriginal people, we were controlled by governments for 200 years. Yeah, I don't want governments to control me anymore. I don't care whether they're black, green, pink, purple, or whatever. I mm. do not want governments to control us. I lived under that system for a part of my life. So I want governments off our back. So why would I trust bureaucracies now to be, you know, yep. I don't. I don't trust them at all. So so can I, can I just ask just to pr- – to understand 200 and 250 delegates to Uluru, they come out with a statement from the heart, right? And they say, not, we not, want- all the, not all the delegates, there was, there were walkouts and you were only invited the 250 delegates were only invited. So, so you don't think that the, that the, the recommendations for a voice for treaty and for truth and reconciliation that came out of the Uluru um, statement are legitimate. To say it was Aboriginal people asking for this is well over, well over, overstating. Overstating, okay. yeah, because there are Aboriginals out there, and there's lots of them. In fact, I was watching a video today on ABC. ABC of all channels, where they were talking to people in some of these remote areas and they were sitting there, they, they didn't even know what the voice was, mm. right? Mm. So so if you've got Aboriginals out there who the people where this voice is supposed to be helping, if you if you believe the rhetoric, and they don't even know about it. They don't even know what it is. They don't know how it's going to help them. They don't know nothing about it. Mm. And that's what I think the vast majority of Australians are the same. It's, it's 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 not about so, yes, yes or no. They're talking. They say this is. Uh, they don't even know what it is. I I, I certainly um, think that there is going to be a lot of money spent on this whole 
exercise. Yeah, hundred ninety million dollars. But it, but but I but I can't argue for me as a as a you know as a white fellow person. I can't argue with the fact that that it came out of Uluru, and as you say, maybe that's not representative. I'll but, read my but, article in today's Australian, and the next one's coming out on Sunday, and then I've got two more coming out next week, three more next week. What I did was I got uh, an Aboriginal woman who is a PhD graduate come down and, and over a three-month period um, did a critique of the Calmart-Langton thing, which is the structure they're going to be operating with, because the mm. Prime Minister said it all the time. Look at the Calmer-Langton report, that's it. Mm. And when you look at it, it is a disaster of monumental, huge bureaucracies. When they showed, if, you, if you're not happy with the decision of the voice, you have this, uh, what do you call it, appeal system. It, it, I got lost on you know, on the on the diagram. You know, I, it's easier for me to go to the high court today than it is under their appeals process. You go through about twenty committees. It's right. you know, so yeah. I suggest you read it. It's in the Australian. Uh, the flaws of um, shall do. The flaw, that's the first piece, and there's there's uh, several. There's one coming out in the Enquirer in the Australian on. Sun, Saturday, and then there's uh, three more coming out next week. Are those yeah. articles and behind a paywall, Warren? Oh well, uh, yeah, yeah, you have to. Uh, <laughs> you are you are such a stingy man. Did, didn't you, didn't your father teach you to go down to the news agents and buy a newspaper? I'll have to borrow your logins. <laughs> I, I, I laugh. I laugh. People get them and go, "Oh well, we, it's a it's a paywall." And I said, "Mate, I I I pay for every, all of those things." You know, I, I, you know, the Sydney Morning Herald, the Age, uh, the uh, uh, the Australian Financial Review, uh, the uh, Telegraph, the New, uh, the um, uh, uh, the Australian uh, Herald Sun, uh, NT News, the, ad, <laughs> the Advertiser in Adelaide, I pay, Courier Mail, I, I pay for all them because I, because it, you know I I want to keep up with the news and what's going on. Mm. Uh, and so, and when these people come and say, "Oh, but you know, we've got to pay for it," I said, "Well, whoopie do." My dad used to walk down to the news agents and pull his few bob out and buy all the newspapers, and then walk back home and read them. <laughs> I think you can get a thirty days for a dollar too. With my yeah, that's right. Yeah, my God, that's even cheaper than buying it in the news agent. <laughs> Two or three dollars in the news agent yeah. to buy a yeah. paper. Listen, you guys, you can you can argue about all that, but um, I mean, Peter wants to talk about something else. But Warren, I've been wondering about the picture behind you this entire evening. You've got a beautiful piece of art behind you. What can you can you tell us which whose whose picture that is? That's Tommy Watson. Uh, he's a Western nice. Western mm. Desert. But I got uh, what happened was I helped raise some money for a dialysis machine for their community and. Uh, and then one day I come to work and my uh, EA said, oh, this bloke, this old bloke come here and dropped this painting off. And I looked at it, I said, I said, Tommy Watson. And and then I chased him down and I said, I can't accept this painting. And, and he said, well, you bought the dialysis machine for us. And then I said, well, 
I didn't do that to get a painting. I, you know, I just did it because it needed to be done. Anyway, he refused to take it back, so I got an ear hanging on my wall. That's nice. That's yeah. Nice. yeah. And yeah. of course, a bone pole and other stuff. So mm. my wife and I, we collect a lot of art. Uh, we know artists, you know, and uh, yeah, it's fun. And due to Liz's question, uh, this episode will now also be available on YouTube so people can actually I've just been informed by my wife that I've been talking for two hours. But anyway. Hey, tell, just tell her we're only halfway through. So yeah, we're <laughs> buckle up. No, Warren, I, re I really appreciate you um, making the time to talk to us because clearly you would be busy. And, and as I said, um, you know, you are part of a, a high-profile crew who ha have come out against uh, the voice, and and obviously you've got very very strong reasons for that. And yes. look, I'll put my hand up and say I'm I'm absolutely one of those people who sees it all day every day across the media, but I don't really know what it stands for. And you know, you've enlightened me somewhat. Hopefully, Liz too. Yeah. Thanks, Warren. Thank you very much for, uh, for having me and. Uh... Uh, I'm going to go and sit down and have a cup of tea now. You've earned it. Thank you very much for Thank your time. You. Thank you. See you later. Great to see, see you. you. See you. Bye. Thanks so much. That, Good night. That was Warren Mundine on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you again on the next episode. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Peter and the Professor. Thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency. For more episodes, go to all your favorite podcasting platforms or head to territorystory.com.